0: Many of you know that our firstborn child, our oldest child, her name is Shelby, S-H-E-L-L-B-Y, okay? Let me say that again. Her name is Shelby, S-H-E-L-L-B-Y. That's not a typo. It's not a mistake, although over the years, people have thought so, Um, and we named her that on purpose And that's her identity, right? That's that's who she is. Your name is your identity. When somebody says something funny about your name when you were a kid, that bothered you, right? S-H-E-L-L-B-Y. Shelby's in grad school over in Valdosta, and you can imagine the shock that she had when her paper was being graded and the professor was marking in blue ink, and... Mark this incorrect on her paper. Go figure, right? You would think somebody in graduate school would know how to spell their own name, okay? That's her identity. That's who she is. You mess with somebody's identity, that's serious business, correct? I know she didn't. she's a nice person, but she didn't take too kindly to, to that mark up on her paper at all. Um, as we've talked about the Jewish people, and as we, we've talked about over the last few weeks, the temple, we need to remember that the temple was the identifying factor. That was the chief identity maker for the people of Israel. The first century Judaism, the temple, was the centerpiece of their life, and it was the centerpiece of their identity. And so as we see over the next few weeks, leading up to the crucifixion, why the religious leaders were getting so angry with Jesus, on top of many things, he was attacking the very heart of their religious institution. Now, let me make sure you're well aware that the temple was God's idea, not man's idea. God is the one who established the temple and the activity that took place in the temple. So what was the problem? Why were the religious leaders of the day so angry? And why was Jesus so confrontational? when it came to the temple, when it came to the temple activity, when it came to the religious leaders in general. We've talked a lot about this first thing is, Israel was not fulfilling its divine purpose. Its purpose was to be a light to the nations. Israel had turned in on themselves. They all, all, everything was about them, and they hated the Gentiles, the very people they were supposed to be shining a light to. And if you missed the sermon a few weeks ago, the very area where God gave the Gentiles to worship and to honor him and pray to him in the temple, which was on the outskirts of peripheral, they had turned that into pretty much a place for animals and livestock to be sold and bought and it was, it was pushing them away from the very the only place they had to to worship and so they were not fulfilling their purpose and then on top of that, the religious establishment also had taken God's laws and added numerous other laws to these laws called oral tradition. And Jesus would have none of the oral tradition. It was not inspired of God. It was not from him. And they were using these things and micromanaging God's people, the people of Israel, on minute, insignificant things, while Jesus said they were ignoring the things that mattered most to God, justice, mercy, mercy. And faithfulness. They were so impressed with the minutiae, the little stuff, the stuff that didn't matter, but yet they ignored the big things that mattered to God. And then finally, the religious leaders simply just had hard hearts. They refused to recognize Jesus Christ. They said they worshiped God, they memorized God's word, they knew uh, who God was in theory, but God stood right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only did they not accept him, that they murdered him, they killed him. And so you see why we have this very, very tense dilemma going on. Everything about the religious leaders was attack, being attacked because Jesus was changing everything. Jesus was changing everything. He was ushering in a new covenant, and the identity and centerpiece of Judaism was about to get demolished not not just go away but it's going to be demolished forever. Jesus said this in chapter 12 verse 6 of Matthew. He says, "I tell you, something greater than the temple is here." And who's he referring to? He's referring to himself. So Jesus' death and resurrection brings an end to the old covenant, the Jewish sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, and the temple, the very heart of Judaism, the place where God and humans meet is now in the person of Jesus Christ. And if we were Baptists, we would say at that point, we would say, amen, right? Because the place where we meet Jesus is no longer a building. It is now a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so think about the temple for a second. Think about the identity they found in this place. Magnificent, incredible, And and you walk past these outer courts, and through these gates, and through a priest's courtyard, you pass this humongous altar where sacrifices were being given to God. And you go into the house of God, the holy place, and in that place you find a table that has the showbread on it. You find an altar of incense, and then in front of you, you see this huge, huge curtain that stands there that separates the people from what's called the holies of holy the holy of holies and in the holy of holies was a place so sacred that the priest could only go in to the holy of holies once a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people and the curtain go to the picture the curtain that separated the curtain that separated the people from the holy of holies was 60 feet long and 30 feet wide And what happened at Jesus' death? The moment that he died on the cross, he cried out, it says in Matthew, he yielded up his spirit, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. From top to bottom, it was split in two. Man was incapable of doing that. That was a God thing that that happened. Why? Because Jesus changed everything. When he died... He opened a way to God for us, and God moved out of that place never again to dwell in a temple made with human hands, Acts 17.24 tells us. Never again to dwell in a place made by human hands. So, maybe you're used to saying this out of habit or maybe out of ignorance, but this building is not the house of God. No church building is the house of God. The house of God is Jesus Christ. And so no matter how big or how beautiful or how innate and special and magnificent a building is, God's presence doesn't dwell there in any special way. He dwells among the praise of his people, regardless of what their location would be. Jesus said, look, a time's coming. It's now here where God will not be worshipped on this hill or that hill, that mountain or this mountain. God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Jesus changed everything, radical, completely demolished the old system. And so, you all understand a little bit why the religious leaders of the day are so, so angry with Jesus. And so, as we read this passage today, things are coming to a head. They're boiling over. Jesus had cleansed the temple, and now he's been, again, confronted by the religious leaders, the rabbis, the elders in the temple. So let's look at Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 27 through the end of the chapter, and then we're also going to uh, get into the parable in chapter 11, which follows this immediately because Jesus uses the parable to, to reiterate what he's saying. So verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the people. For they, had, they all held that John was really a prophet. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. God, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you will open our hearts to your truth. God, we thank you that you dwell among the praise of your people. We thank you that you are here in our presence, in our midst, because you dwell in us. You're with us, and God, we can know you and come to you because of Christ. I pray that we will just see in a fresh way today just the difference that Jesus made, not only in our life, but in the world, and radically changed everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, he comes back in the temple. He, he cleansed the temple. He moves back to Jerusalem. He comes back in the temple, and immediately, verse 27 says, says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders come to him. And many of these religious leaders at this time were very corrupt. As we've talked about over the, year, uh, over the weeks, over the year, I can say, um, th- these, these priests, these religious leaders have been corrupted not only by their belief systems, but they've been corrupted by Rome. Uh, we know Herod was the king who was basically a puppet, a pawn of, of the Roman government and then in turn Herod put people into the priesthood who were also his pawns and so the priests they lived lives of luxury they were looked at and revered as special people in their society and while the average jewish person lived and struggled i mean they just struggled to survive and to get by and these guys were collecting temple taxes to just to continue their lavish lifestyles and many of the priests Even though they hated Rome, many of them were in Rome's back pocket. And so there was no separation of church and state at this time. The priests, they were not only religious leaders, but they were political authorities. They were political leaders in Israel. And so the people... As we know, on we looked at a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the people welcomed Jesus as a conquering king. I mean, here he came in, and they were, Hosanna, praise, praise. I mean, Jesus was coming in, they were making a big deal about it, but we know also, because we know what happens next, right, that the people are very fickle, and the same people who were crying, Hosanna, one week, will shriek at him, crucify him the next week. But the priesthood was undoubtedly, they were jealous of Jesus at this point. They were jealous of his popularity, and they were also fearful of of Jesus. And so he walks right into the temple, and I'm sure they were worried, what's he going to do now? He just, uh, you know, a day earlier had cleansed the temple, run people out, uh, shown his authority, and basically they were intimidated by him at some level, and they were intimidated by the support the people gave him, and they approached him, and basically they're going to ask him, Who do you think you are? Who do you you think you are coming into our temple? Verse 28. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Now Jesus evades their trap cleverly by setting a trap of his own. Look at verse 29. And he said to them, Jesus did this a lot. Jesus often, if you read the Gospels, Jesus oftentimes, when people ask him a question, he'd turn around and ask a question back. And that's exactly what he did here. He said, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is not willing to give a straight answer. Why not? Again, it boils down to the hardness of the heart. Not only hard hearts, but, that, but we learn in the gospel these guys have evil hearts. They're unwilling to open their eyes and see with faith who Jesus is. Jesus has done everything that anyone could ever expect him to do. Miracles, raise people from the dead yet they still refuse to believe. I included on my last Monday email, I included a really, really good quote by a guy named Blaze Pasqual, who said this, he said, In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Let me read that again. In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And these religious leaders... They had no desire, regardless of what Jesus did or said, to believe. And there's a lot of people like that today, and there may be somebody here sitting in this room, that you go through the motions. Maybe your spouse drags you here. Maybe you're here with a parent. Maybe you're here to make a parent happy. But the truth is, you refuse to believe. You refuse to believe. And God's word, his revelation through creation, his revelation by this supernatural book of the Bible that we have, and yet we look at it and we say, you know what, I I just don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. We'll see in a minute that God's offer of salvation may not always be there for you. And today is the day you should respond to the gospel and not not put it off. And then as Christians, we need to be careful as well because sometimes it's easier for us when it comes to things that we don't like. It's easier to not want to believe than to have our eyes opened. I just—I don't want to believe. I'm just going to be comfortable in kind of putting my fingers in my ears and closing my eyes and not feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to be arrogant. I'm going to be selfish, and I'm going to have a lack of faith because I just don't want to believe that I need to bust out of my comfort zone and follow God in areas of my life that don't feel real natural and comfortable. I think about parents. Think, put this real practical. Parents, how many of you, honestly, you know that you should be taking intentional steps with your kids to lead them, teach them the word, be involved spiritually in their lives. And, and many times you've had good, uh, good intentions to do that. You get the stuff from G-Kids home and you're like, I should do this. And yet, you, for some reason, it's a lack of faith. You're unwilling to take that step and say, hey, guys, come, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what really, really matters in life here. Let's talk about what's really important. But we make excuses. We, we just say, you know, I, I'm just going to let the church handle that. I'm going to let them, they're the experts on it. Let them teach. I don't want to mess things up. You know, I don't want to teach them the wrong things. And the list goes on of reasons why we don't do that because we're content to not to believe and not to have our eyes opened. I think about a, another issue um, we, we, we all deal with, we struggle with. Last year we kind of showed you this map and we talked for four weeks on love your neighbor. Um, and you remember that chart where we were supposed to try to fill in the people around us by their, their first names or first and last names and get to know them just as a chance to just build relationships with them. And that's hard to do, isn't it? it it's hard to take that step of faith. I have a a couple neighbors on my street that that are really, really difficult to get to know, really hard to get to know. They don't really want anything to do with me. And then some that should be easier, and I just find other reasons or excuses not to go out of my way to be uncomfortable to spend time talking to them. I mean, we're all in the same boat, right? We're in a hurry. We're moving from this event to that event. But maybe it's our priorities that are out of whack, me included, if I don't have time to love my neighbors as I love myself. Jesus' words, not mine. And so you see, we're all guilty of this. So we don't look and just study God's word from a, oh yeah, tell us more about these Sanhedrin Pharisees and these guys, the rabbis and the priests. Tell us all the bad stuff they were doing. Yet we never turn it around and say, God, open my eyes, open me to the truth and help me to see how I need to, put my faith into practice so the religious establishment of the day they were just simply unwilling to step back and look uh, look objectively at jesus at his life and at his ministry they were unwilling to have their own authority and livelihoods and traditions questioned and jesus just didn't fit the bold of the messiah they wanted and were expected and then jesus his inflammatory teaching his claims and the confrontations just had pushed them to the brink His teaching to them appeared to contradict Scripture, although it never, ever contradicted Scripture. It just attempted what they presumed to be Scripture. And we saw some chapters back that their sin was one that was unforgivable. Their hearts had become so hard and their cynicism so great that they would actually get to the point where Jesus would do a miracle and they would say, that's Satan doing that miracle. That's Satan. They would take the work of the Holy Spirit... And their unbelief was so deep and so hard, they would say, that's the work of Satan. They were beyond the point of no return. As, as a group, they were beyond the point of no return. They had such a settledness, settled hardness in their hearts that Jesus could do any, couldn't do anything to win them over. They were no longer capable of repentance. And so look what Jesus does next. Like a, like a chess master, he sets, he, he sets a trap for them, but he also... He tells them the truth. You might not get this when you first read this, but look, he, he actually gives them the truth. He says, He says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men or from man? Answer me. So he turns it back around. He says, Okay, tell me about John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from man? Answer me. And so Jesus brilliantly here, he asks this question, which is actually a coded way of answering their question. Why? What happened at the baptism of John? When Jesus was baptized by John. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. You remember also, John pointed out, as he was walking toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The one who the Old Testament predicted would come and take away our sins. Here he is. And so if they looked at the baptism of John, if they were honest about the baptism of John, they would see who Jesus was, what authority he did have, where his authority came from. And so if the priests and the religious leaders had really understood what went on at John's baptism, their question would have answered itself. But as you can see from the text, this is also a trap. Jesus puts them in this dilemma. He basically says, you tell me, you know, was John, was, it, was he from heaven or was he working from the works of men? Who was he? Was he legit or not? And they knew, uh, they discussed it among themselves. If they say from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why did you not receive it? Why did you not receive this? this message of repentance that he preached. Why did you reject John? But, verse 32, out of fear for the people, they were afraid of the people, they were afraid of the masses, they didn't want them turning on them, they already had Jesus being put on a donkey and riding through the streets of Jerusalem as a conquering king, and they said, you know, if, if they were afraid of the people, if they said that John was a prophet, then the people, that's what they thought. They, they thought that John was, was a prophet. Maybe, some even thought he might have been the Messiah. And so, clearly, they were in a, between a rock and a hard place here. The people said, yeah, John, he was special. And so, where, what were they going to answer? What were they going to do? Well, if you've tracked through this series at all with us, one thing that the religious leaders of the day were not willing to do was to not have an answer or say, we don't know. But that's exactly what happened here, right? Uh, verse 33, so they answered Jesus, We do not know, right? They were in such a bind, these experts, these spiritual leaders had to admit they were in a quandary. They could not answer. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So after three years of teaching and performing miracles to verify his claims, Jesus had provided overwhelming proof of who he was. Nothing he could say or do could change their minds because there were limits to God's patience. Limits to God's patience. And so as I said a minute ago, if you find yourself in here today a seeker, a cynic, you're, you're looking at it, and you're, you're cynical of all this, you, you, maybe you're, you're slightly a seeker, but you're kind of dropping back and kind of, I don't think this is true, it's not for me, I'm not, not really believing it. Look, God's general revelation will always be there for you, but his what's called effectual call, his, his specific reaching out to you through the Holy Spirit to draw you to faith won't always be available for you. And that's why it's important to respond to the Holy Spirit. Respond when he draws you to himself in salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And then he turns to this parable, and now Jesus, I mean, basically there's no way around it. He's just deliberately provoking them at this point. So he begins to speak this parable, and he's going to smack them right in the face with what he says next. He says, verse 1, he says a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What's Jesus getting at here? Jesus was reusing a very well-known theme from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah writes about God planting Israel as a vineyard. He's watching over it. He's anticipating good grapes and good wine from it, but he finds none. The vineyard, despite all God's care, produces nothing but junk. Nothing but bitter, rotten grapes, fruit that's absolutely worthless. And so all that's left for God to do at this point is to bring judgment down on it, to, to trample it down and to destroy it, to leave it in ruin. And it's a tragic and terrifying picture of what happens if God's people persistently and consistently reject the, reject the purposes for which God had called them. And so that's what Israel had done. They would rejected And so Jesus takes the story, and he weaves it in a slightly different direction. He makes it his own, and he takes Isaiah's account and redirects it. And Jesus now directs his judgment, not at the vineyard, but at the farmhands, the the tenants who are there to steward the land and produce the crop. And clearly, these are the religious leaders of the day. These are the people who Jesus is having this confrontation with. And the people they killed and, and beat over the years, those were the prophets of God who came and tried to give Israel the truth, and they rejected it. In verse 6, look what it says. It says in verse 6, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. And this this word, this, this phrase, beloved son, that's a phrase that Jesus picks right up the same expression from when he was baptized. This is my beloved son, God said, and who I'm well pleased. And if you remember the transfiguration, the same expression. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from out of the clouds. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Jesus inserts himself into the story, and he says, he says, the son comes, but what happens? Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus was saying again that he's going, God's going to destroy the temple. He's going to destroy the Jewish sacrificial system. He's going to wipe away the priesthood. He's going to do away with the Sanhedrin and all the rest, the very heart of Judaism. And who's he going? To, what's he going to do next? He's going to give the vineyard to someone else who? The redeemed people of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Hello, that's us. We are now the tenants. We're the stewards of the vineyard. Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. He says, I expect fruit, God says. Israel, religious leaders, century after century, the crop you produced has been worthless. He entrusted it to their care. They were horrible stewards. They kill the prophets. God now sends his own son to testify to what God is doing in the world. And Jesus predicting his death, his crucifixion, says they kill the son as well. Next he quotes Psalm 118, 22 and 23. He says, have you not read in scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? You've rejected God. You've rejected God standing right in front of your face, religious leaders. And this, this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. So he's saying, you've rejected God's plan. Jesus said, you've thrown me out like a builder would take some useless stone and just toss it aside like it was pointless and worthless. But he says, that stone that you picked up and you just discarded, that very stone is the most important stone, the cornerstone. The cornerstone, the most important stone in a building, the standard of measurement and the standard of alignment, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the cornerstone. And you're picking me up and you're tossing me out. I come and I'm the son of the vineyard owner and you're going to kill me. But the beautiful thing is, Jesus was no victim, was he? Make sure parents, your kids are in here, make sure they know that. Jesus wasn't a victim. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world. This was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus changed everything. It's all about Jesus. Verse 12, they were enraged. And they were seeking to arrest him. They wanted to just grab him and lynch him right there on the spot, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Duh, you think so, right? So he left. So they left and went away. Yes, it was against them. And we're only a few days away from the crucifixion, and they're going to manipulate and they're going to work behind the scenes and continue to develop their plan they might destroy him in secrecy. But it doesn't matter. We know the end of the story. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changed it all. The old covenant, the new covenant had come. And what's beautiful about that is the very nature, don't miss this, the very nature of God and his union with you through Christ Jesus also makes you the temple of God. I said the temple is Christ, but as as a result of your union with Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you, you're the temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You are not your own. The effect of the union with Christ means that God's presence dwells in you. Think of the most beautiful church that you've ever seen in your life. It could be in Italy. It could be in the United States. It could have been on pictures or TV. You know what? It doesn't compare to your temple. Because God doesn't dwell in structures made by hands, does he? God's dwelling is in his people, with his people, among his people. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this union with Christ and you being the temple, Jesus changes you radically. And you know, what the, you know what the really, really scary and sad thing is for most of us? That we don't really understand the significance of being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. And all those pictures that we saw in the video we saw, and all the incredible, incredible amount of focus that went into that temple, yet we just look at our mundane lives like they don't matter, they're insignificant. And if, we don't, or if we're not careful, we fall into the very same Result that the Jewish leaders of the day did. Fruitless lives. Fruitless lives. John 15. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Christ in you. How do we bear fruit? We abide in Christ. We abide in God. We know God. He's our Father. We talk to Him. All that that emphasis we put last week on, on prayer and talking to God and believing in faith, yet chances are we roll in here seven days later, and most of us have forgotten the sermon. We've forgotten the text. Our prayers probably didn't change a whole lot, but a few of you, they did. A few of you said, there's something About my relationship with God that should change everything. There's something about who God is and the God lives in me that should bear fruit. And so I'll end how I end a lot of sermons your relationship with God. Are you building on that relationship or are you ignoring it? Is God important in your life? Is Jesus the cornerstone, the key foundation that brings alignment to your life, that keeps everything straight? Or is Jesus just a peripheral kind of thing you do on occasion, part of one of the many things, and you're running your life and doing all the stuff? You know, parents, I think indicative of what's really important to us is the things we talk about at home. And so I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to encourage you. Fathers, mothers, take that step of faith. Allow Jesus to be the primary identity in your life by getting to know him, abiding in him, reading his word. And as a result of reading his word, then you'll have something to give to those that you come in contact with, your family, your friends, your co-workers. What's your identity? I hope it's not Grace Church, even though we love Grace Church. I hope your identity is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He changes everything. So therefore, it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, your, your word is so powerful. and so amazing. And it causes us to reexamine ourselves and to look at the change that you made in our lives when we put our trust and faith in you and not just look back on some past decision or even look to the front as some future place we're going to be with you. But God, you change things in the here and now that you radically make a difference in our lives. And God, I pray that through our union with Christ that we'll really, really wrap our minds and our hearts and our lives and our actions around our identity, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that you're living and working in us. And you're doing your work. And people meet you through our interactions. And through us preaching the word and giving the word. And God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.